0: Central.com.
1: How much of what and how you think is holding you back right now? Would you care to know? Well, Harvard psychiatrist and brain scientist Dr. Srinipile has a career that spans three decades and has now put his learnings into a virtual masterclass about this. He calls it the science of possibility, leveraging your brain for future success. Now, I don't think there are very many people in the world who wouldn't want to know what's in that masterclass, Srini. Um, he's here to give us a few tips and tricks on how to shift your own uh, use of your brain and how that could shift the way that you do things for the better. What a pleasure to see you. How are you, Srini, Pile? I'm very
0: good, thanks, Gareth.
1: Thank you for having me. Good. No, no, it's delightful, and I'm I'm very happy about this. So Let's just mention up front, your, your virtual masterclass is actually happening on the 30th of July. Uh, That's this month. You've got only a few days left to make sure that you're in. 3 to 4.30 p.m. South African Standard Time. Tickets are 250 rand, and you can get those tickets from uh, brainfarm.co.za. But if you need any other info, we'll also post the links with this podcast interview. So, Dr. Pillay, um, you live between Boston and New York, but you grew up here in South Africa, so your connection here is very strong still. Um, You've gone on to do amazing things uh, at Harvard and with McKinsey uh with various think tanks you've been the CEO of Neuro Business Group and and continue to be so all of this uh leads me to think that you must have a very interesting and very busy and very varied and dynamic life is that about right
0: it is yeah you know i, I in general i think i've always been restless internally and i've always felt like i don't really like living within boundaries and i don't really like living in containers or with titles, so I'm as interested in the arts as I am in the sciences. In fact, I just finished writing a musical, so I'm I'm wow. really interested in, and I'm also the chief medical officer of a technology company. So I, you know, I like really spanning everything between science and art and technology, uh, and even those categories, I don't think really represent what I feel. And and to a certain extent, I think it's that curiosity that allows me to connect. With people. Uh, and I, I have a sort of controversial view on education currently, which is that I think a lot of education is based on people who've been successful who then come up with methods uh, that they prescribe in order to do something. And mm-hmm. I feel like most people who follow those methods, whether they're at schools or listening to people online, are not, are not ever as successful as the people who are talking about them. So I actually believe that the the need for most human beings is not to follow other people's prescriptions, but to actually tap into their own ingenuity. And I think schools are, can be helpful for people like me who are maybe more insecure about the intellect, so they need to somehow structure it. Um, but I don't feel like they're necessary uh, in the sense that if you are able to tap into your ingenuity, uh, there's a lot from brain science and I think just from human experience that tells us that we're neglecting our own ingenuity. All
1: right. So before we get into how exactly that brain science that you've done a lot of research on in in your academic work um, can be better used and better put to use, before we get into any of that, you said something interesting just now. You said, you know, that you have both this artistic creative side and a much more scientific, logical, rational mind. Why is it that most of our Teachers and most of the of the structures in academia in the world separate at, at great length. Um, they go to huge amounts of trouble to to show how different the creative or the right side of the brain stuff is from that left side logical stuff. Do you believe there is first of all a partition between them? Do you believe that the two are fields that are non-overlapping magisteria? And most importantly, that there's actually science that could back that up, because it sounds to me that people like you break that rule
0: i so I definitely do not believe that there are partitions in the brain. Um, you know, we have a hundred billion neurons and a hundred trillion connections uh so and those connections do not only occur in one hemisphere or the other hemisphere, they can occur across hemispheres as well. so I think at the very basic level, our brains are not necessarily partitioned I think we can organize those partitions into particular ways of being
1: mm.
0: uh, for one or the other reason. Uh, you know, so I think a lot of people in terms of your, I think the first part was whether I agree that they're partitioned and I, I don't. I, secondly, do I, do I think that, uh, that people that why do people partition this, the, their mm-hmm. worlds in that way and why are they always advocating for their side versus the other side? <laughs> I think, uh, I think this is an epidemic that exists At a microscopic level, at the level of like how people want to manage their brains, and at a macroscopic level. Humans have a need to define their identities through containers and through boxes. And so I think naturally, if you spent a lot of your life studying science, you're gonna feel passionately about it and you're gonna feel like it is the way to be. And if you feel if you spend a lot of your your life studying the arts, I think you also think it's a very uh, you know, it's, it's the way you know how to navigate the world, and so science feels a little oversimplified. I just feel like, I, it's for me, it's not really an academic question of whether it's science or art. You know, if you look at it just the way people are in the world, you know, people, a lot of artists are are very scientific. You mm-hmm. know, if you look at even Surrealists, you look at Magritte or Dalí. It's not like they just have random melting clocks or you know twenty thousand apples in front of a face. Like something about the proportion in the in the picture strikes you as having a scientific bent. Well, if you, you, look you
1: at, can you can see in Greek architecture and and ancient Roman architecture, it was very much appreciated that science and art had to go together.
0: Yes, absolutely, and I think it's the same thing with scientists and mathematicians. You know, whenever you hear any dialogues from Einstein, for example, you never hear him say, well, you know, B equals MC squared and that's just the logic of it. You know, he said, my discovery was a musical perception. He, you know, yeah. he, I think, I think a lot of invested scientists recognize that they've got to make wild associations in order to have these insights. So, and I don't think you have to be you know, of, of an Einstein caliber to appreciate that. Mm. I think you just look at, like, a person who's in the garden growing beautiful flowers who knows that there's a process for, you know, people who have green fingers have that because they follow a process on how to nurture the flower but also to put them in the right soil.
1: Yeah, I mean, you also, simultaneously, you don't have to know the Fibonacci sequence to have an appreciation for a beautiful flower.
0: Absolutely. And so I, I think this idea, certainly there's a lot of brain science to show that the creative and logical brains often work together. And even if you look at the mind-wandering circuits in the brain, the, our minds, you know, we spend 46.9% of the day mind-wandering, no matter how productive we like to be. <laughs> and, and actually, if you look at what's going on in the brain, at the same time that the mind-wandering circuits are activated, the brain's logical circuits are uh, directing it to a certain extent. So there's extensive evidence to show that logical and non-logical circuits can interact. And I'd just like to point out that non-logical does not imply illogical. Right. It's simply not logical.
1: Okay, so, so Dr. Pillay, th- let's get back to the brain for a second, because I, I could philosophize with you all day about this stuff. Um, the most interesting thing is that you take the science, and, and brain science is still – despite all our best efforts, it's quite mysterious. And there's still a lot about it that we're not entirely sure of. We've kind of figured out what certain parts of the brain, motor and sensory, and we know where balance is located. And we know certain things about the way that neurons transmit information across the synapses. But there's a lot of this, that's is very mysterious, right? And to actually then take this quite mysterious stuff, and, and even the stuff that we do understand, and then try to make that part of our behavior is a whole different world. That's the application part, which is where you really are, I think, most motivated.
0: That, that's right. I mean, I think most of the most of the sciences are actually a mystery, much more than people realize. Uh, you know, I think before Einstein came along, people thought Newton was certain, uh, and now You know, even after Einstein's theories, people are challenging Einstein's theories. So even in the more concrete sciences, that is true. In the biological sciences, it's even wilder. I'm not even sure that I'm comfortable calling the biological sciences or what I do as science. You know, I think being a doctor, you recognize that science and the science and art of being human are both really important. So from a brain science perspective, I think what I feel I do is condense and translate information that I learned as a brain scientist in terms of understanding, firstly, that the brain can change, mm-hmm. called neuroplasticity, right. and the fact that we can do very specific things to change our brains, and that there are some very well-replicated studies that show this. But I also like to say to people that I both believe and don't believe anything that I say, and <laughs> for, for two reasons. One, one is that I think that uh, science is a process in constant evolution, And secondly, because it really has my what I believe and don't believe, and what I'm telling you to do, as I said when I started, has less to do with what I hope people do with the information I give, which is that they use those as structures to hold on to while they explore their own subjective
1: ingenuity. But we do know that we can create neural pathways and that we can reinforce those neural pathways, and maybe this is where the use of the brain, something which, which you will handle in this masterclass, how we can better put our brain to use, how we can exercise those powers which we m- might not have consciously been aware of and what we might be able to do better. This is almost where and people might start to think that you start to sound like a you know motivational speaker mythologist and those kinds of things so just give me the the basics in terms of science of what you're trying to teach people to do how you've actually implemented this stuff in your own life and how you've seen other people do it sure and in other words let's so dis, let's no- disabuse them of that uh, that notion right at the beginning
0: sure well, I, I think it would be true to disabuse them of that. I, I, I think uh, there are a couple of concrete paradigms that maybe I'll share by way of example, and then we can get into them in whatever we'd like. Right. Uh, so one thing that I think a lot of people ask is, what do I do when I'm feeling overwhelmed and anxious? And I used to direct an anxiety disorder service at Harvard where I saw lots of anxious people. And, you know, there's the psychiatry way of handling things with medications and with therapy, and that can be helpful for a portion of people. But there are a large number of people, even after they take medications or when they're in therapy, who are thinking, I don't know how to manage my anxiety on a day-to-day basis. So if we look at the brain science, when you're anxious, a lot of different things happen. But one of the things that happens is that there's excessive activation of the emotional center in the brain, which is the amygdala. This amygdala, or the emotional center, is connected to the thinking brain which is largely in the prefrontal cortex. Now, Obviously, there are a million caveats to all of these circuits, but this is a pretty reliable finding that anxiety overactivates the amygdala. And because it's connected to the thinking brain, it disrupts the way we think. So it's hard to make decisions. It's hard not to procrastinate. It's hard to innovate. So one of the things I teach people is how do you redirect blood flow away from the amygdala? What do we know from brain studies that show that when you're anxious and your amygdala is flooded with blood, can you move blood to other parts of your brain like the thinking brain? And so one way that I teach this is through a mnemonic, which is CIRCA, C-I-R-C-A, where the first C, now people often do one or more of these things, but what I would recommend that people do is to try this all out on a specific problem that's causing anxiety right now. Uh, The C stands, the first C stands for chunking, and I'll go into each of these, The I is ignore mental chatter. The R is reality check, which is basically self-talk to say this too shall pass. The second C is control check, which is like the serenity prayer, which is decide what you can control, decide what you can't control, and know the difference. And then the A is for attention shift, move your attention, which is like a flashlight from the problem to the solution. And just to get to the first two, chunking is basically you know, if, if I'm feeling like I don't know when this pandemic is going to end, like what am I going to do? It's like, well, with pandemics, every pandemic so far, there has been a beginning and an end. So why don't I figure out what I'm going to be doing this month, next month? And just by saying that to yourself and not having constant conversations about, oh, I don't know when this is going to end or what's going to happen, you actually calm down your amygdala.
1: This is the idea of eating an elephant one bite at a time.
0: Exactly. So, you know, I think the idea is going sort of very slowly and sort of trying to uh trying to break things on one tone. So the eye, which is ignore mental chatter, is about mindfulness, which is a pretty powerful practice. So there's a lot of brain science to show that simply by closing your eyes, focusing on your breath and ignoring whatever mental chatter is is in your mind, you can you can create a brain state where you get less blood in the amygdala and more thinking abilities so you can focus better. In fact, Elizabeth Blackburn, who, who got a Nobel Prize, uh, has been doing some initial studies showing that mindfulness can change the can change your genes so that you can even live longer. Like there are telomeres wow. at the tops of our, of our genes, which are caps, that get shorter and shorter as we age. And what mindfulness does is it decreases the speed at which those are shortening so you can live longer. So... Again, this is preliminary data, the last thing I said, but the first can can move blood away from the amygdala and decrease amygdala activation. So, you know, there's also a bunch of different other kinds of meditations that can be helpful. And then, as I said, the self-talk mechanisms of reality check, control check, and attention shift. So now you've got a paradigm like circa, and, and people say, well, I don't know what to do. I'm feeling like my life is going nowhere. I'm feeling like I'm in the middle of, this pandemic. I'm trying to make it in South Africa. I don't understand what's going on with the politics. I don't understand what's going on with the environment. I don't understand what's going on with illnesses. How do I manage this? It's like, well, if you if you take circa and if you break this down into what am I doing in the next week, next month, next year, if you say every morning I'll have a mindfulness practice or whenever I'm feeling anxious, I'll have a mindfulness practice, five to 20 minutes. Start, you can start small and, and go up. If you say this too shall pass, of course, You have to believe it. Like, it's not just like, well, let me just try and tell myself that. But I think there's a lot of data to show that no pandemic has lasted forever. Like There's not been a little pass. It's probably, it's likely. Then control check, which is, I can't control. There's certain things you just cannot control. Like People are constantly talking about the stock market or talking about politics. Well, there's certain things, if you're going to control it, by all means. So, you know, take charge, talk about it get yourself all riled up about it and then do something about it. But if you think about the brain, the brain has a limited number of resources on any particular day. So let's say you have 10 units of attention. You know, I, th- there's a reason I on Twitter I describe myself as somewhere between martinis and meditation. It's because <laughs> I, I, I feel like there's a certain number of units of attention that it's your choice to decide how you want to use it. You can lo- use all 10 units worrying all day, or you can tell yourself, you know, certain things concern me, so I'm going to worry about these things now, and I'm going to actively build time for peak experiences in my life so that my attention can be directed toward that.
1: Ah, but, but there is something that you're leaving out here, and, and, and this is also quite well-researched and well-founded, well, well is that the amygdala almost has its own reward center, where the amygdala likes being in charge of the rest of the brain, and emotional attention Um, being paid to the self is most gratifying to people. So they'll sometimes enjoy wallowing and they don't want to find a solution because it's much easier to complain and to be sad or to be angry or to to blame someone else or to lash out. And, And this is something which I think you'll probably refer to in your masterclass too, but it's something we have to be aware of and we have to actively work against, is it not?
0: Absolutely. In fact, you know, there are two perspectives I'll share here. One is psychological and the other is biological. From a psychological perspective, uh, there's, a, there's a phenomenon called repetition compulsion. And Freud and a bunch of, Freud was a neurologist, but Freud and a bunch of other psychologists were standing around watching babies. And they thought, you know, you can imagine how experimental psychologists are not always in humor, but they were like, this is a very weird behavior. Like, why are these babies throwing out their toys from their cots. Like it would be like coming home and being like, oh, I'm just gonna throw out my furniture today. Here's the light, here's the chair. It's like, that's a weird behavior for a human to have. And so they then started saying, well, okay, that's fine. But then they started crying. They're like, come on, like you threw the toy out. Now you're crying about it. And then they said, then the mother brings the toy back in this experiment and the baby starts clapping, gets really happy. And they're like, okay, that's a little crazy. Like you threw the toy out, then you cried. Now you're happy that the toy is back. And the mother turns around and the baby throws the toy out again. And they're like, okay, we need to understand this. Like what is going on that the baby keeps on throwing out something that it wants so that it can apparently rehearse this emotion over and over again. And one of their thoughts is that humans are wired to master disappointment and not to seek fulfillment. Hmm. That fundamentally... We love being really great at the fact that life can be really crappy and we can do amazing things when life is crappy. So we create these situations of negativity for ourselves, even unconsciously, because we want to practice being masters of disappointment. Wow. And if, if you actually look at the psychological theories about this and the brain science that goes along with this, what you have, one of the leading theories about worry is called the contrast avoidance theory, which is that. If you actually look in detail at why people worry, and as you said, you know, a lot of people are just, you know, they're like, what do you mean I can't worry? Like people are dying everywhere. Like I don't feel safe anywhere. I don't, I'm not, my life is not going anywhere. Like this is all fact to them. The reality is that in life, you have peak experiences and then you have these valley or trough experiences. And the fall from peak to trough is so frightening for most people that they would rather commit to mediocrity. So they can be in the middle so that when they do fall, the fall will not be as great. And in the masterclass, what I really want to talk about is how do you build possibility so that you don't commit to mediocrity? How do you, what do you, what can you tell yourself? How can you change your brain? How can you change the way you manage your life so that you don't just become a reactor to life circumstances, but actually take charge by changing your brain?
1: So this is this is all very helpful for anxiety and when we talk about uh, uncertainty and fear. But but uncertainty is particular, and and we have a very measured response to uncertainty. And the the brain does similar things when it's presented with a, a positive information. Uh, wh- what have your studies revealed about that? And how can we better deal with? the very many uncertainties that we may encounter on a daily basis and make those decisions a little bit better? Some of those decisions can be made more snappily. Some of them require thought. Which is which?
0: So I think with uncertainty, there are, there's a, I could talk about this forever, but I'll, I'll try to summarize <laughs> elements of this. So I think one of the basic findings that's helpful is a study done by Serenopoulos and colleagues, which was really around 2009, so it was a long time ago, uh, what they did was they looked at the brains of anxious people, of people who are uncertain, and they looked at another group of people who were just living life as usual. And what they found was that in the uncertain group, there were certain brain activations that correlated with the fact that 75% of people mispredicted when bad things would happen, which mean that, means that when you're uncertain, uncertainty throws your brain into a bias so that when you're biased, you start to think, the word, you expect the worst and you think the sky is going to fall down. But in reality, uncertainty means I don't know. It does not mean something horrible is going to happen. But the brain, because of activations in the insula, which is the gut feeling detector, and the conflict center, the anterior cingulate cortex, because of those two regional activations, the brain starts saying, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, something terrible is going to happen. And 75% of people think something bad's going to happen when it doesn't happen. So the very first thing we ought to tell ourselves is that uncertainty throws our brains into bias. And studies do show that self-talk can significantly change the brain just by talking to yourself, either out loud, which sometimes is a bit crazy if you're in public. So you might want to do that by yourself, but talking to yourself out loud (laughs) or actually uh, talking to yourself in your head and saying, okay, like, I know I'm feeling freaked out right now, but I also know that 75% of people, feel like something bad's going to happen when the the reframing of that is to say i don't know means i don't know it does not mean you know something bad's going to happen so that's the first kind of thing you could do for uncertainty the second thing you could do has to do with what i call more basic confidence which is when you're feeling uncertain and your confidence is shattered there are things you can do to change your brain the first technique is pretty simple it's called affect labeling which is simply calling out the emotion. So if you're feeling anxious, and you can call it whatever you want to call it in your own words, freaked out, jittery. So essentially, when you label the emotion, it decreases activation of the amygdala, which means your anxiety is less. So that's the first thing for basic confidence. The second thing for basic confidence is is actually speaking to yourself in the second person and calling yourself by name, which I always thought was kind of a nifty trick, but I never really used it. Except last year, I was giving a talk in Singapore on a stage that I realized I had to walk up and down, and there was an audience on both sides. And I thought, "Oh, this is not going to be that hard. I'll just look at both sides." Well, as I was looking at both sides, I realized that the stage was actually uneven, and so my shoes kept getting stuck in what was going on. So I had, I had to concentrate on the stage, on my shoes, and with my hat. And I was and I was starting to feel a little bit flustered, and I thought. It suddenly occurred to me, I said, why don't I just use this technique that's been well researched by Ethan Cross and his colleagues, where instead of saying, I'm going to crush this, you say to yourself, Srini, you're going to crush this. So Mm -hmm. what happens is in that moment, you have an anxious self, but you know, the self is not just one thing. It's not monolithic. It's sort of, we have an anxious self. We have a confident self, a happy self. We have all kinds of ways of being. So when you say, Srini, you're going to crush this, your brain is not if you if you say i'm going to crush this your brain's like yeah right whatever like, <laughs> you're freaking out but if you say Srini, you're going to crush this you actually are talking to another part of you and i it actually works so now i feel like but i does have does
1: that have to do with the fact that perhaps those parts of you which aren't so sure don't mind being told by those parts of you which are
0: exactly Th- that's exactly right and so and and so the fact that we just think when we're unsure that it's all of us it's just not true. So, so speaking in the second person has been shown to in, increase confidence, decrease stress. The third, uh, the third thing that I think I'll mention here is something called ironic process theory, which has been extensively studied by Daniel Wegner, uh, who's unfortunately died, but he was at Harvard and studied for many years that when you have, want to do something, rather than telling yourself not to do it, you should frame that in the positive. So for example, when they saw uh, soccer players who wanted to score penalties, if they said, and they attached eye-tracking devices to their eyes, if they said, do not kick the ball to the right, the eye would go to the right immediately. So they've seen this, you know, it's like if you're at a party and you're holding a glass of red wine, you're thinking, do not drop the wine. Why is it that the wine always drops just as you're walking past the white couch? And you're like, oh my God.
1: They've they've also shown that people who are driving and who are fixated on on the barrier between the left and right lanes of the highway will inevitably veer towards that barrier, right? For the same reasons. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's exactly true. So I think that, that, that telling yourself, you know,
0: before a board meeting, rather than saying, I don't want to lose my temper, I can't tell you how many executives I've worked with who say, I don't want to lose my temper. And they go in and they're like, I don't know what happened. I just suddenly lost it. It's like, well, try saying, I want to be calmer. or I want to be connected. You're going to see yourself so that's basic confidence, but I think those are the more basic things what i want to address in the workshop is what I call possibility that leads to existential confidence, And what we know in the brain is that there is a there is a thinking brain that's about attention that can conduct all of these cognitive things like I'm telling you, like you know speaking in the second person, labeling your affect, avoiding using the word no, self talk saying you know the brain exaggerates things. But there's also another part of your brain called the default mode network, which is the unfocused part of your brain. So my my last book, which was uh, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, I wrote about the benefits of activating the default mode network and using strategic unfocus, because what we know is that this network actually uses 20% of the energy in the body. Focused attention, you know, like where we say we've got to do something, just uses about 5%. And that's because the background activity in the brain, where we're busy putting puzzle pieces together, is actually doing much more work than than what's happening in the foreground. Is, so, that, is
1: that almost like your your hard drive where you've got administrative stuff going on and it's apportioning this and moving that and recategorizing and filing this? And all of that stuff almost happens automatically in the background, but it takes an enormous amount of energy. And your RAM is doing the immediate work. Is that that almost a correlation we could make between a computer and a brain in this respect?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, because a lot of people think that their conscious activity is what will get them somewhere. Mm. But the truth is, people try very hard. And a lot of people don't get to where they need to get to. And that's because most of our days are lived with focus, focus, focus fatigue, which basically means all you're doing is fatiguing the brain, and focus is great, obviously. I mean, I'm I'm a fan in certain instances. Like you don't do things if you don't focus. But I I am a fan of of living a life with intermittent periods of unfocus. So focus, unfocus, focus, unfocus. Because if you if you, it's a bit like li, like living without refueling your car. It's like you won't drive cross country without refueling your car. So why would you go through an entire day without refueling your brain? And so, in the book, I describe various strategies that you can use to unfocus. And and one of these is the sense of possibility, which is more than like oh, you just have to believe and you know this is this is how you think. It's changing the way you operate. Basically, in an uncertain world where you know everything is changing all the time, and you just have no idea about your future. If you rely on the external world for your own success, then You're going to be up and down all the time. It's going to be yanking your chain all the time. You have to figure out a way to have a vision for yourself that is stable enough that you can actually operate with and put together through these periods of focus and unfocus so that you can learn to be committed to a possibility that is not yet a reality, but which really relies wholly on your self sufficiency that you can feel in your bones. It's not how much education you have. Mm. It's not who taught you. It's not whether you know brain science. It's not whether you know psychology. You know, the the example I like to use here is the One Laptop per Child project, which is a project that was done in Ethiopia where they dropped a bunch of computer tablets saying, I wonder what these kids will do with it. Like, they've never seen technology before. Will they eat it? They sit on it? Like what, like, what do you do if you have no idea what these structures are? Well, what they found was that within a couple of hours, they found the on-off button. Within a couple of days, they were singing ABC songs. And within a few weeks, they had hacked Android. Now, these these kids had not been to school. Nobody told them this is the instruction manual. But when you rely on your ingenuity and your curiosity, you will find an intelligence that does not exist in any book. And really what I would love to... Inspire people to understand is that there's a brain network, there is a brain network that supports this kind of thinking, and it is the possibility network, which is the default mode network.
1: This is fantastic. So, this default mode network sounds to me like a bit of a secret weapon, and because it's running in the background, so much of of it we just take for granted and we don't take seriously.
0: Yes, absolutely. In fact, a lot of people don't realize that this downtime or unfocused time has been instrumental in people making major discoveries. Cary Banks Mullis, for example, who found a way of making synthetic DNA. His lab, his lab colleagues hated it. They just said he's not a scientist, he's not following linear process, he's not following a linear procedure, but he was driving to Ber- from Berkeley to Mendocino with his girlfriend, he had had a little bit of red wine, she was asleep in the car, he suddenly stopped the car, Started sketching some stuff on a on a wall. Went to their little house and found none of this was that linear. I think linear thinking is what we come up with when we reflect on how we got somewhere. But if we actually think about our lives, our lives and our successes are not all about straight line thinking. You know, there it's it's intriguing to me where we end up in life. It's intriguing to me how we end up in life. You know, like I.
1: No, no, this, this reminds me, I've spoken to a lot of musicians about when they come up with their, their great works. You know, if it's a song that you've written, for example, which becomes a hit. And many of them say that they, they can't really pinpoint. It. It's not as if they sat down with the intent of writing a great song. It almost happens when they're a little distracted.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think so many people feel like they get their best ideas in the shower or in the middle of a walk where you have this downtime because your brain, you know, our focused mind collects puzzle pieces. The unfocused mind puts these puzzle pieces together. And and learning how to do that and to make that a priority, I think, is something that's left out of our education systems, because everything that we're taught is do, do, do. But think about this. how many people have tried really hard and never gotten anywhere. How many people have said, I'm definitely going to you know, do this in a very large... Logical... I mean, the way I got to Harvard from South Africa was I was standing at a game reserve in a Kuga National Park, and I was... I saw the speaker from Stellenbosch and I thought, God, I really, this guy's amazing. And then I thought he's going to think I'm crazy if I just, because I was sort of over the top about his talk. And so (laughs) I was standing next to him. I was waiting for a car to pick me up. And I said, you know, I just wanted to tell you, your talk was really amazing. And he said, you know, thanks. You know, like a normal human being. And I said, I don't know why, and I know this is really insane, but I really feel like you could change my life right now. And I just, I would just like to ask you, can you, can you, Just say anything to me, because I have a strong hunch about this. And he said, well, how do you want to change your life? And I said, well, so what are you interested in? I said, well, I don't know. I think I'm interested in human emotion and the brain. And I think I would love to be able to study that. And he said, well, we have a Medical Research Council scholarship. They've never given it to someone of color before, and they've never given it to someone in psychiatry. Their chances are really low. But if you want to submit an application, why don't you do that? And the next day, I faxed it over to him. He walked it over to the council committee. And a few hours later, I got a call saying congratulations and welcome to Stellenbosch. This is not a very rational way of approaching life. you know. And I'm not saying everywhere we go, we should just try out a possibility. But if you have a hunch, you probably are collecting information that is unconscious, that is that is being processed in the background, that you're just picking up little pieces of information and you don't know what, what what those things are. And really, I used the same kind of process to get from Stellenbosch to Harvard. I just decided to pick up the phone. You know, There was no internet that I could access. I had to go through different operators from a small dorm room. And I just eventually, you know, I did the South African thing, which is like, I want to speak to the manager. I was like, I want to speak to the head of Harvard. And <laughs> so they were like, yeah, right. Head of Harvard what? And I eventually got to... <laughs> I got to the head of psychiatry at Harvard, and I said, "Hi, my name is Trini. I'm sitting in a small dorm room in South Africa, and I'm thinking, boy, wouldn't it be great to be at Harvard?" And he told me later, because I trained at that hospital subsequently, he said, "I thought you were crazy, but I thought I had to say, yeah." I said, "Sure, submit an application, see what happens." So of course, (laughs) I had to work hard to do that. I had to do well to do that. But there are a lot of people who did well. The question is that 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 and it, you know, I think working hard and doing the work is part of the work. But but then taking a chance and stepping into this field of possibility is really where I think a lot of people don't look because possibility is so ephemeral. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, thank you, Srini. I look forward to your workshop, your masterclass. We'll post all the details for it on cliffcentral.com. And uh, thank you very much for a really interesting discussion. I think we've only touched the tip of the iceberg here and i'd love to have another chat with you at some time in the future
0: yeah i would love to i would love to as well thank you very much and thanks for taking the time thank you so much thank you
1: Cliffcentral.com.